Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found uh, to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope, in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall be made alive. But each is in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God and the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Now join me. All flesh is grass and its beauty like the flower of the field. Thank you, Jordan. Thank you, Callan. Uh, good morning, everybody. It's a joy to worship with you all this morning. I'm going to encourage you to keep your Bibles open. If you don't have a Bible, uh, open your phone. Uh, if you don't have a phone, congratulations. Um, we really do want to allow our hearts uh, to be open to the Word of God. We are uh, looking, we're finishing pretty much our series in 1 Corinthians, and we've been studying the Corinthian correspondence through Paul addressing 10 different problems in Corinth. And the gospel has been the solution for each problem in that congregation. Uh, we have discovered that the gospel is actually the solution for all of our lives, for all of the pain and the problems uh, that we endure. And today we come to the central core of that hope, the promise uh, and the reality of the resurrection. Uh, now, Paul is addressing a, a funk, a, a actual disbelief in the Corinthian church. Uh, the church was born into a Greco-Roman world. They did not have a category and could not comprehend a dead man rising from the grave. And the church had become shaped like the culture. And they did not believe that the bo a body could rise from the grave. And so they didn't believe that Jesus rose from the grave. Now, where you and I can identify and I know this to be true because I walk with many of you, is that you can acknowledge with your lips that you believe Jesus rose from the grave, but you have a functional disbelief in your life. That you functionally don't act as if death has been eaten. You are ravaged by fear, anxiety, uncertainty, loneliness, and you, you're really leaning into the decay of a fallen world. When we fully hope, leaning with all we've got into the reality of the resurrection, Jesus bodily coming out of the grave, then we will discover a concrete confidence in our life, a conviction, a power in his promises that truly will turn your struggles into strengths. 
Now let's, let's orient ourselves to where we are in this passage. We've, we started this series by looking at 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, we defined the gospel. It's an announcement of the victory of God, Jesus rising from the grave, uh, a proclamation of him as king. We looked through that, but specifically if you look at uh, the first several verses of chapter 15, we saw that uh, he says that the gospel I preached to you and you received. The gospel we saw uh, uh, is something that, that we receive by faith. The work of the gospel centers on Jesus Christ and what he's done. We receive the fruit of the gospel, the benefit of the gospel by faith and faith alone. And it's personal. And if, if the gospel of Jesus Christ isn't personal to you, if it's more of a list of rules and part of some religious practice, then, then odds are that you're still dead. But we also saw about the gospel that it's about Jesus in his work. Verse 3, he says, I delivered to you as a first importance what I received from Christ. Christ died for our sins. Centered in the gospel is the work of Jesus Christ. He died for our sins. He rose from the grave. The gospel is about Jesus. It's also biblical. He did this, keep reading, according to the scriptures that he was buried and he raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Not only was it biblical, we talked about how it's historical. Verse 6, he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, some who have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and him and goes on. So the gospel is biblical, it's personal, it's historical, it's about Jesus and his work, and it's something we receive by faith. And the way that you can diagnose your heart to see if you've really put your faith in the work and the person of Jesus is by seeing how much death is dominating you or not. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is about death being eaten. It's gone. I wanted to to give uh, an image of this that I think will stick with you. And that is of a vulture. See the picture of the vulture? Yeah, did you know? I know you were like, you have some of the, some of y'all have this as a screensaver on your phones. <laughs> I know. Vultures are absolutely disgusting. They're gross because they eat dead things. Nobody, there's no like how to make your vulture yummy cookbook out there. We don't like vultures. We don't want vultures, but we need vultures. You know why we need vultures? They play a vital role in the ecosystem. You know why? Because they eat things that have died, things that are decaying so that you don't smell them, so that other animals don't go feed on them, little rats or mice that will scurry back into your house, or domesticated animals like dogs or cats that will go and, 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 and to a decaying carcass and then bring some sort of disease back to you. They found in many parts of the world, and especially in India, that the lack of vultures all has huge, catastrophic implications especially for the urban areas uh, that, are, that are in India. Here's why. Because uh, it, they, they, in India, and specifically, they had a whole lot of vulture population decrease. In 1993, they started noticing just an off-the-cliff decline of vultures. And by the time they got to 2006, they had done all of these studies and realized that almost the entire vulture population in something like 10 different kinds of vultures in India, almost all of them were on the extinct list. And it cost the country of India over 65 billion U.S. dollars. 
But worse than that, because of the decaying animals, the decaying carcasses, the decaying bodies, that different dogs and other animals had eaten on it, gotten disease, people had gotten rabies and died, that because of the decaying carcasses, the, the death was sinking down into the water supply. And more valuable than money, they found that almost 100,000 people had died because death had not been eaten. You see, the functional disbelief of many Christians, you can take that off the screen now, is... (laughs) Nice fadeaway. That was good, Bob. That was good. You're showing off on that one. The functional disbelief for Christians that say they believe Jesus rose from the grave is the reality that decay, that things of death are being digested in your life. You see, vultures, when they eat death, they they actually process it and they fly, and and, and actually what they drop fertilizes life on the ground. The kids in here know what I'm talking about. It's vulture poop, right? Yeah, most of y'all are like, I'm too sophisticated to talk about that in church. Well... It brings life to the environment. And when we understand that the work of Jesus has actually eaten death, it's gone. Then when we digest that reality, it fertilizes hope in our hearts. It gives life that you're longing for, strength that you're living for. It removes fear, it replaces anxiety, and it turns your struggles into strengths. That's what we're going to see. That's what's on the line. You see, the gospel solution is for every person that believes and it will redefine and reframe your realities. But first, let's, let's look at this question of hope in verses 12 to 19. Paul begins to diagnose the logic that if you don't believe in bodily resurrection, here's the consequences. And he unpacks it like consequences that cascade down this series of, he has emphatic ifs. He repeats the word if like six or seven or eight times in this passage. And he, he's, he's Look at this verse 12. If Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can you say there's no resurrection from the dead? Like he is anchoring this in the proclamation. It isn't just a proclamation of, hey, you know, Jesus came so that we could be nicer people. Jesus didn't come with uh, the intentions of you having your best life now. Jesus came for more than moral management. The message, the proclamation of the gospel was simply this, that there was a man who was sinless and died. He was buried and he rose from the grave. The proclamation of the gospel was a historic fact that people who were alive at the time saw and knew. You see, Jesus came and did what he did so that dead people would become alive. Everything's on the line. And if we don't believe in the resurrection to the Corinthian church, or we functionally live without it, here's what's ahead of us. Verse 14. If Christ wasn't raised from the dead, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. You believe for nothing. Vain here means empty, without substance, no significance. Verse 15. We're found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. It makes people who bear witness, who testify to the historic reality of the resurrection of Jesus, liars, false witnesses, punishable by death. Verse 17, 
And if Christ had not been raised from the dead, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. There is no gospel without dead man Jesus becoming alive. Your sins haven't been forgiven. Death hasn't been eaten. That darkness will prevail if Jesus didn't rise. Verse 18, those also who have fallen asleep in Christ, they've perished. If Christ hasn't risen from the dead, then the loved ones that we lost in Christ will never meet again. It's like life is just a dead-end, purposeless journey with no eternity if Jesus didn't bodily rise from the grave. Verse 19, for if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we of all people are to be pitied. If life is only about what happens here, what we see, then we, if you believe this, are to be pitied. You see, the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so central that nothing else can stand without it. And it was difficult for the church to believe because their culture didn't have categories for it. And the church in Corinth had actually been shaped like the culture on a worldview level, how they saw everything. But here's the real tragedy of it. It isn't just about misunderstanding Jesus, which it is. It isn't just about not understanding the gospel, which it is. And those are important. At least it diagnoses that when we think wrongly about God and his work, then we think wrongly about a world gone wrong. At least it means that. That what the ideas we have theologically have direct implications to our life. But it means more than that. Because Jesus Christ, and and, uh, N.T. Wright wrote a book called uh, The Resurrection of the Son of God, The Victory of God. It's a phenomenal book, but in it he spends several pages, almost a whole chapter, talking about how Christians, if we misunderstand this, uh, or, or the world, we actually are missing out on more than that. We're missing out on the opportunity for participation in comprehensive new creation. Because when Jesus rose from the grave, he was ushering in, inaugurating a kingdom that is not of this world, but that will be a forever kingdom, a place where there's no more sin, no more suffering, no more dying, where all the struggles and suffering and pains of this world have been completely redefined. You see, when we come to Christ, we're a new creation. The old is gone as new has come. And we have this invitation for participation in God's comprehensive new creation. And in Christ, that starts today. So the casualties are tremendous if we miss it. You know, Paul teaches about this uh, everywhere. First Thessalonians 4, 13 to 14, he says this, brothers and sisters, we don't want you to be uninformed about those who have fallen asleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and we believe that God will bring Jesus, uh, bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. You see, the, the reality of the resurrection of Christ, it taps into the deepest longings of your heart. This is why as a culture and a community, we celebrate Dios de los muertos, right? We long for there to be something after death. 
This is why, as a congregation, we celebrate All Saints Day, because there's a hunger in your heart for something more, and the resurrection is the only door for you to go through. It gives real hope in a world gone wrong, and real power. But you've got you've to diagnose yourself. Are you living with a functional disbelief? Do you live like death has been eaten? Gone? Leaning into God's promises and his power for a real newness of life? The next thing we see, the last point, we have two points today. Not only do we see the question of hope, that there is power over pity, but we see the certainty of hope. There's promise over problems. And I love what I love what Paul does here. Do we have any Bob Ross fans in here? Bob Ross, yeah, we got some hands going up. Bob Ross would be painting, and he's like, oh, we got a happy little accident. And like with three or four brush strokes, he turns that happy accident into something beautiful. And what Paul does, there are no accidents when God is sovereign, but he takes the, you know, the pain and problems of the world, and with the, a few brush strokes, talking about the resurrection, he helps you see this majestic masterpiece that exalts the supremacy of Christ in everything. But first we've got to be honest with the pain, the fear, the fear when we read about the wars of the world, the anxiety we have with things that we cannot control, the fracturing and the friction that comes with that, the finances that really are weighty, the family that really is dysfunctional, the loneliness that's epidemic, the depression, the darkness, the addiction. We have to be honest so that we can see the power of the resurrection completely reframing those realities. All of those are weights of living in a fallen world, but the work of Jesus gives us an invitation for a new world today. Now, can I give you one more illustration? Is that all right? Yeah? Okay, I see a few heads nodding. I want you to look at this picture. This is a picture from uh, a, a scientific study called Biosphere 2. It's called Biosphere 2 because it's the second Biosphere study. Not real tough. They're not going to, you know, uh, this is the second one. I don't know how many they're going to do. But they wanted to double down on their study of the biosphere to see if they could find uh, more helpful ways to the earth to farm and to uh, you know, raise food for the world's population. And they discovered a lot of interesting things, but one thing they were surprised to discover in Biosphere 2, the trees that you see, uh, they discovered that trees in Biosphere 2 actually grew faster than normal trees but they didn't live as long. They didn't grow all the way to maturity. You know why? They realized that in Biosphere 2, there was no wind. The trees were never under any stress. There was no storms. And so the, the trees didn't get what's called stress wood. Stress wood is what empowers a tree to position itself so that it maximizes how much sun it gets but it also, stress wood, enables a tree to sink its roots down deeper so that it can have a long life and grow into maturity. And so when we understand the resurrection, we see that the, the anxieties, all that we feel are reframed. 
We find power in God's promises. It it helps you to look at your anxiety, to look at your loneliness, to, to look at your fears, to look at your pain. And it forces you to lean into the promises of God, the reality of the resurrection, so that you can grow in maturity, so that your roots sink deeper. You see that illustration? So that you don't fall down just because you're growing up. Now, Paul gives us three different promises that come that help us see how our stress is a gift to give us strength in our faith, how the reality reframes, a resurrection reframes reality. First is this, verse 20 to 23, Christ will distribute more fruit. His resurrection is a first fruit. Look at verse 20. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. Verse 23. But each in his own order, Christ. The first fruits, then and his coming, those who belong to Christ. There's a representative reality here. If you've received the gospel by faith, you are no longer represented by Adam. In Adam, all die. Decay and death is your destination. But if in Christ is where your faith is, his perfect life in your place, his atoning death in your place, and his resurrection, then you will be made alive. And that new life starts right now when you put your faith in Christ. There's a, there's a representative reality. Christ represents us. But there's also a redemptive reality. And that redemptive reality is that the first fruit of the harvest... An image that intentionally takes us back to Leviticus 23 and, and, and festivals and tabernacles and feasts for the Old Testament people of God. But the first fruits of the harvest will be followed by more fruit. An abundant harvest. That a sheath of grain now or a basket of fruit now will be followed by an abundant harvest. You know who that is? That's you if your faith is in Jesus. You in Christ will rise from the grave bodily. You will rise for eternal life in a new heavens and a new earth. Christ rose from the grave and he ate and he drank in fellowship. And when he ascended into heaven, his angels told his disciples that he would return exactly how he came. There will be a new heavens and a new earth. And if you're in Christ, death has been eaten That's why Paul consistently calls the grave a place where you sleep. Because what happens every morning after you sleep? You know, you hope you sleep, but what happens? You wake up. In the same way in Christ, we will wake up to a newness of life. Christ will distribute more fruit. Second, Christ will deliver his kingdom. Look at verse 24. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom. To God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. The end of the world, as we know it, is a new beginning for everybody who's in Christ. Like Noah, who was caught up in the flood and then left behind to enjoy a completely restored earth. So Christians in Christ, too, will experience the benefit of new creation. The word here uh, of Christ coming back 
when the world ends, he will deliver to the kingdom uh, and he will destroy every ruler and authority and power. The language uh, that is used is cultural language that talks about a king coming to visit in victory. The end will come when Christ comes, but it's a new beginning. The first fruits will be distributed with more fruit, but Christ will deliver his kingdom. The destroyed language here is truly making totally inoperable uh, the powers of this world. The authorities that we fear. The uncertainties that just lead to all kinds of anxiety in here. It happened historically for the people of God. Uh, Nations like Assyria and Babylon, empires like Persia that were overthrown. In the context of that, there was prophecy. Daniel, for instance, Saul in Daniel 7, verses 13 to 14, one like the Son of Man who came. Every single power, every single authority, every single nation was under his feet. Likewise, when Jesus is described in uh, Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 17, he is described and portrayed as one that it rules over every authority, every power, every principality. The kingdom of God that has been inaugurated in the work of God in Christ will be consummated and delivered to the Father. Signed, sealed, delivered. <laughs> but also we have this hope that Christ will defeat his enemies. This is, this is where it ends, verse 25. For he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. Jesus reigns today, present tense. Jesus is ruling and reigning. He sits on the throne. He is making all things new, Revelation 21. He he rules to such an extent that when his enemies raise their fists at him, Psalm 2, God laughs at them. Psalm 110, the messianic hope that David's greater son would rule until all the enemies of the world are put under his feet. This is the reality that Christ will comprehensively defeat his enemies. This is good news in a world at war. And if God has really eaten death in Christ and that the powers of darkness have been defeated, then we can have hope in those promises. It's why the uh, Apostle Paul uses this kind of language when he talks about the gospel in other places. In Colossians 1, he says that people who have faith in Christ have been ripped from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of God's beloved Son, taken from darkness and put in the kingdom of light because of the work of Christ. Now we're tempted. We're tempted to say, yeah, Jesus is going to defeat all his enemies. We're going to show them our battle's not against flesh and blood, but against darkness and principalities. This means that your enemy is not your spouse. It means your enemy is not your boss. Your enemy is not a family member that you can't reconcile with. Your enemy is not a neighbor that annoys you. Your enemy isn't somebody from a different political party, a different country, a different nationality, a different religion. Your enemy is the enemy that Paul describes in Colossians 2.15 as being completely disarmed. No power. 
And if you don't lean into the hope and the promises of God and allow the resurrection to reframe your reality, then rather than having faith and concrete confidence, you will be paralyzed by fear in the midst of these enemies. As if them killing you is a bad thing. In Christ, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Because the resurrection completely reframes everything. Now, I'm going to confess something to you before we come to the table. I really struggle with anxiety and fear. I struggle with reading the headlines of this world and experiencing heartache. I get paralyzed. True confession. And I, I love studying the Bible. I love teaching the Bible. And this week I was talking with somebody and I was like, man, these verses give me hope, right? They give me hope that the powers of this world are nothing in God's hand. They remind me of God's sovereignty. They give me hope that the evil that, that, that keeps me up is going to be dispelled, that the wickedness that we see all over, it's going to be gone and washed away. I was, man, I love these verses. And I said, don't they? Don't these verses just give you hope? Don't these verses just give you a strong sense of, of encouragement? And they said, yeah, but not as much as it gives me peace. I said, what do you mean? This is what they said to me. They said, it just makes me grateful I was an enemy of God. I opposed God with my heart and my life. And while I was still his enemy, he died for me and made me family. I was like, you want to preach? That's good. <laughs> That's what it's about. If the reality of the resurrection gives us concrete confidence, hope, the promises of God gives us power in a world of pain and problems, and it's really personal, that means that we are different, that we realize the truth, that the reason Christ came to die is to reconcile the world to himself. Paul says that God's love is made known in this, that while you were still a sinner, Christ died for us. While you were his enemy, he gave his life. And you can be sure of that because it was the night that Jesus was betrayed, handed over to die, where he, after giving thanks, took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body given for you. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup. And he said, this is the blood of the new covenant poured out for the forgiveness of sins. As long as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you'll proclaim the Lord's death until I return. And friends, he will return. The king will come back and in him all sad things will become untrue. The invitation is for believers to come to this table and feast on his grace, his sovereignty, his work in Jesus. This table is not First Presbyterian Church's table, it's Jesus' table. If you belong to Jesus by faith, Come and feast. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the amazing truths that are in the gospel. And we pray, Lord, that you would move them just from simple propositions and promises that are written on a piece of paper. And we ask that you would help us to discover the power of God, to reframe reality with the resurrection. Lord, that we could see how you turn our stress 
and our struggles into strengths by forcing us to feast upon your life. Lord, in your death, you ate death. It's gone. And we need that reality so that we can flourish in our humanity. Father, I pray for all of the wars in this world that you would bring peace for the most vulnerable in our world, that they would find family and security. Lord, we pray for the dark powers of this world to be made to look foolish. And we ask that we would hear your laughter at their attempt to overthrow your authority. We pray for the hearts of those that are leading the most death-filled movements in the world. And we ask in the way that you grabbed the Apostle Paul and moved him from a persecutor to a preacher, a murderer to a missionary, that you would do that today. And Lord, as we come to this table, former enemies that have been made your family, we pray that you would set these common and ordinary elements apart. Lord, that in our unrighteousness we'd feast on your righteousness, that in our sin we'd feast on your forgiveness, that in our death and our mortality we'd feast on your life and your immortality. Lord, by the power of your Spirit, nourish our hearts with your grace and deepen the security we have as your children. And that is heard when we pray together the way you taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not in a temptation but deliver us from the evil one. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.